The Rambam says in the first halacha of the 10th parak of Hilfus Abel that Hashabos Ole Luminyan Avelus Ve'ein Avelus Bishabos Elabidvar Shabitzina That Shabbos counts towards Avelus, it counts towards the Shiva, but we're only knowing Dvarm Shabitzina, private parts of Avelus on Shabbos. Two halachas later, in halacha Gimel, the Rambam says, Harigalim Ve'ein Rosh Hashanah Ve'yom HaKippurim Unlike Shabbos, on the Regalim, on Yomim Tovim, there is no aspect of Avelus that applies. And the explanation is agreed to by everybody and is very simple. And it is that Shabbos has a din of Oneg. Oneg is not completely inconsistent with Avelus. They're not synonyms, but they're not antonyms either. So therefore, you can have some level of Avelus on Shabbos, but on Yom Tov, the Samachta Bechagecha, Yom Tov has a din of Simcha. Simcha is inconsistent and cannot coexist with Avelus. And therefore, the Mitzvah Derabim of Avelus, of Simcha on Yom Tov, is Docha Avelus, so it can't apply. The premise of these two halachos is that Avelus is absolute sadness, just total depression and total involvement in mourning and the sense of loss, as is in most cases. Today, it's much more complicated. Because what if there was a time where you dreaded hearing certain news, but after a certain period of time, you actually hope to get that news. When Zach was first taken captive, as we thought, so you dreaded to find out that, God forbid, he had been killed. But as time went on, and time was first days, then weeks, then months, then years, you kind of hoped for the news. And so when we, get the, when we got the news last night, I think people who knew him, but all of us together, had a confused sense of Avelos. On the one hand, he's now dead. On the other hand, there's now some closure to this 37-year-old story that dragged on, and you had a person who, for whom nobody's named, despite the fact that he has nephews and nieces he never met, and great-nephews and nieces he never met. No one sat shiva for him. And now it's come to a close. And so we're conflicted. On the one hand, we're overwhelmingly grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to the army and to the group in the army, Eitan, the Iturein Ne'edarim, for whom Nathan Seidman worked and Jason Greenspan and plenty of our guys were so proud of them. But we are where we are. We need to mourn a person. So let me start at the beginning. 37 years ago, and I never knew how long ago it was, but all the articles say 37 years ago, turns out, I was a Shana Aleph Talmud in Yeshivat HaRatzion. And the Yeshiva was very similar to what it is today, except in retrospect, it was much smaller. At the time, I thought it was really, really big. It wasn't as big as it is now. It wasn't really a Tochnit B'nei Chutz And, you know, you sort of just found your way around Yeshiva. And there were, like today, you know, groups of Israelis who intimidated you and didn't speak any English and were, you know... 16 hours a day learning in the base Medrash. And then there was the group of Israelis, like we have today also, who grew up in America, 
were much more culturally American than Israeli. Just nice, lovely, outgoing people. That, that was Zach Baumel. That was Zach Baumel. Okay? His father used to say, you know, when I hear people describe Zach as a Talmud Chacham, I know they didn't know him. Okay? He was just a nice guy. He made Aliyah around the age of 10 in 1970, which allowed him to talk about the 69 Mets as if he had remembered them, and maybe he did. He liked the Beatles. His main job in yeshiva was he was in charge of the Thursday night basketball game. There was no gym in the Givat Tzuvah back then. It was a midnight game, and you had to walk to Rosh Tzurim. In those days, you could walk to Rosh Tzurim because there was no peace yet, so there was no terrorism. So you could just walk up the road. <laughs> and everybody did, you know, if you wanted to play. He was in charge of that game. But he was really kind of like an unofficial madrich because he was an Israeli, and so you respected him, and he was all those things. But he was just really an American who grew up in Brooklyn, had the same background of all of us, and he was a person who I came to rely on and who we all relied on. Um, okay, fast forward. Yom Yushalayim that year was a Friday. It was at the end of May, and if you were in Yushalayim on the Friday, so it was great to be able to stay someplace in Yushalayim, and Zach invited me to his house. I think other B'nai Chotzars were there also. Spent Shabbos at his house. Completely normal. Meaning, there was nothing unusual. He was a normal guy, his brother, his sister, his parents. Just normal Americans who were trying to find their way in Israel, having made Aliyah not that long before. I didn't know at the time, obviously nobody knew, that that was Zach's last Shabbos at home. Because the war broke out at the beginning of June. And like everybody else, Zach got called up. I can only describe it to you as I remember it. But in a time where, in those days, Israelis went to the army Shir Bet for part of the year, came back Shir Gimel, went Shir Dalet. So when the call-up came, basically the yeshiva was left just with Shir Aleph guys and Chutzmakim. There were random other people around, but the base house was pretty empty. And at a time before the internet, it was hard to follow news of the war, and news was, wasn't instantaneous. We used to listen to the news at the top of the hour, and then some nights, if you can imagine, like nights saying in a pretty empty base medrash with people, you know, worried about their friends who were in a war, we used to go to the Beit Sefer and the Givat Suba. They would wheel out this big TV and we'd watch the news during Night Seder. And that's kind of how we followed it. Okay, June 10th was the Battle of Sultan Yaakov, which is basically acknowledged as the worst military disaster in the history of Israeli army. People know more about it than I do. But that's the day. You know, 20 people were killed, and Zach and Yehuda Feldman and Svi Katz, those three names were kind of always set together, were lost, taken captive, or nobody knew. You know, you're sitting in the yeshiva, he's your friend, it's the end of the year, you know, it's quiet. You don't really know how to feel, except you hope very much that the news is not true. You hope very much that him being missing in action really means missing in action, and that he'll be returned. But, you know, you're a Shana Alf American, you don't really understand completely what's going on. Most people left for camp, I left for camp also. You know, and you, there's no way to follow every day. You just wait to hear that Zach was found and that, thank God, he's okay. But he wasn't. And it slept on and on and on. 
And from that time on, his parents, Yona, Zal, and Miriam, waged like really an unrelenting war to try to find their son. And you know, you think to yourself in retrospect, well, obviously everybody was killed in this battle, so Zach must have been killed also. What? They were unwilling to accept that, and it wasn't irrational at the time. There were pictures of Zach's tank in Syria that they sort of marked through the streets, showing the Syrian victory. There was these the grainy pictures of what could have been Chayalim, who were being paraded through the streets of Damascus. There was a sense that he really, really could have survived the battle and have been taken captive. And on the one hand, that's hope. On the other hand, like as time goes on, the thought that he could still be a captive someplace in Syria is painful and it's tragic. But his father never stopped. He wouldn't stop. Years later, during the Camp David peace process, okay, years later, meaning more than 10 years later, Yasser Arafat gives half of Zach's dog tags to Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel, as a sign of something. So there you go, he's got his dog tag, right? There's every reason to believe now maybe he was taken captive and he was alive. And certainly as we stand here today, I don't know the real story. I'm not sure that, you know, if they know it, they're not sharing it yet. But there were all these reasons to believe as time went on that he was still alive. I asked Alka this morning, we don't remember exactly what year, but 10 or 15 years after Zach went missing, we hosted the Baumels in our house in Teaneck for an evening to continue awareness, you know, that Zach is out there somewhere, and they would not consider the possibility at all that he was dead. And they kept fighting, and all. there kept being signs and signs of hope and whatever, and even when you and your, in your heart, and by that time in my heart, I thought, God forbid he's still alive, because that would mean, you know, 15 years in Syrian captivity. Who could put up with that? But I, I sat with Yonah Baumel that night, and he joked, you know, he joked about Zach and who Zach was, and how Zach was just the guy who liked the Beatles and basketball and sports and whatever. But his point was, he said, people talk about Zach like he's a hero, as if our obligations are only to find heroes. He said Zach wasn't a hero. He just did what he was supposed to do. And the state of Israel owes it to him to bring him home because he just did what he was told to do. I remember at the time, and I think even now, about the question, does that make Zach a hero or not? So we think of heroes as being people who do, you know, who are eno mitzuvah osa, right? Who go above and beyond. And I assume for sure in some definition of hero, that that works. But that doesn't work for most of us. Most of us are heroes of the type Zach was. We're Mitsuvin Vaosin. Zach's family went on Aliyah, so he came on Aliyah. They thought the right thing to do was to go to a Hezdi Yeshiva, so he came to Gush. In Gush, they told him to go get in a tank, so he got in a tank. And one day in June of 1982, they told him to get in a tank and drive, you know, into Lebanon and go to Sultan Yaqub, and he did that. And he was killed. It's probably something that any of us could have done. Except we didn't, and he did. And I think that makes him a hero. It makes you a hero when you consistently do that which is asked of you and expected of you. And it happens to me that Zach did it with a smile and with grace and with a sense of joy. But he did all the things that we would say to ourselves, we would hope for ourselves, God forbid, and if we were asked to do, we would do. But that's how countries are formed, that's how the state of Israel was formed, that's who we want to be. 
yeah, I suppose, you know, you could do superhuman things. But at core, the people we want to be, the people we most admire, are the people who get up and do the things they're supposed to do every day. And that's what Zach did. And his father felt strongly that everybody owed it to Zach, not for being a hero, but for doing what he was supposed to do to bring him home. And now that the people have brought him home, and now that the state has brought him home, when his father died, seven years ago, his mom came to speak in yeshiva. Maybe I'll send it out. She spoke in the base Spanish. It was the 30th anniversary of, uh, of his capture at the time, we thought. Um, his father had died before then. And this I remember clearly. You know, people wrote these articles how sad it was that Yona Baumel had devoted his life, basically, to bringing his son home, his son home and died without having completed that mission. But I remember thinking, he's meeting Zach now. He knows the truth. He died. He's meeting his son. He didn't need to happen in his lifetime. But he devoted his lifetime to it. I think his father was a hero. Every single day he got up and worked to bring his son home. We raised money and they had all these missions and did all these things. It was all to bring him home. And despite the fact that his father said Zach wasn't a hero, Zach was a hero and his father was a hero. Which brings us to the funeral tonight. I think we should go. Obviously, people have to decide for themselves. But Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazeh works in two directions. One is I think we should go because he's us. He's every guy sitting in the base matter. He's the Israeli who sits next to you. It's true you never met him. But he's just a regular guy who went to this yeshiva like all of us. And if you went to this yeshiva 37 years ago, you would have been friends with him. Okay, so you're here now. But he's our guy. And to go to the Leviathan, to feel part of it, is significant. Sometimes we go to Leviathan because we knew the person and we feel connected. And I feel stronger that you knew him and you're connected enough to go. But sometimes we go to Leviathan for the opposite reason. Because we want to feel connected. Kali Yisrael Arabim Zelazeh sometimes describes the fact, but sometimes it describes the effort and the goal. And I think if you don't feel connected enough, you should go. Because if you go, you'll feel more connected. These are stages, these are parts of the history of Am Yisrael and the state of Israel that we're connected to and that we're related to. And to go to Leviah is a statement. And the statement is, I want to feel connected. I want to feel like Zach's story was my story. I want to feel like the yeshiva story is my story. Maybe I'll make Aliyah one day, maybe I won't. But I'm part of the history of Am Yisrael. I hope I don't know people who sit next to me in the base finish to whom, God forbid, this should ever happen. But if I do, they'll be part of my story and I'll be part of their story. And so we very much think, me and the Raman, that, again, it's the end of this man, there are all kinds of conflicts, there are reasons. But if you could, we think that the Leviathan is something that people should participate in. Many people and Hespedim, I don't think this is a real Hesped, but you go to Leviathan and you hear, you know, the Pasuk from Yov, Hashem Natan Hashem Hashem For today, I think to myself, Hashem Natan, Hashem Lakach, Val Hashem Chazar Natan Odapam, and for this and everything else, Yehi Shem Hashem Mavorach.